We are in a series right now on the book of 1 Peter. And uh, the book of 1 Peter is just a wonderful, wonderful book. You know, I don't know if there are any people in here who, like, studied literature or English or anything like that. If, if you, uh, you, uh, you know, majored in one of those things in college. But, you know, even at that level, like the book of 1 Peter, it's, it's, it's beautifully written. It's just a joy to read. And this book is powerful. There's some amazing truth in this part of God's word. And so we're going to look at it tonight. Um, The book of 1 Peter has five chapters. It's a short little book. We're not going to spend a whole lot of weeks in it. Uh, But tonight we're looking at chapter 2, the the first part of chapter 2. And um, chapter 2, I don't want to get ahead of myself here. I don't want to spill all of my my beans before I've even uh, (laughs) turned over to the right page here. Uh, But yeah, chapter 2 is a chapter that's going to tell us something about what it means to belong. What does it mean to belong? Uh, you know, some of you who attend college may, um, you know, your, your campus might have like a campus newspaper. So like, I think someone told me this week, like TCC has a little student newspaper or something like that. Is, that. is that true? Any TCC people here who can confirm that? Is that true? Okay. Anyone ever read it? Anyone, anyone ever write for it? Maybe some people here have written for it? No? Well, so, yeah, and, you know, a lot of colleges have those. And in 2012, there was an article that was written in, uh, it was the Yale Daily News, so the newspaper for uh, Yale University. It was this article that went viral, you know, not very common, right, because it's just this obscure little newspaper. And it was an article called The Opposite of Loneliness. And it got like 1.4 million views, you know, it clearly struck a chord. And it was written by this girl named Marina Keegan. And in this this article, um, let let me just read you like the very first couple of lines. She says, we don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness. But if we did, I could say that's what I want in life. It's not quite love and it's not quite community. It's just this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people who are in this together. Who are on your team. When the check is paid for and you stay at the table. When it's 4 a.m. and no one goes to bed. That night with the guitar. That night we can't remember. That time we did, we went, we saw, we laughed, we felt. And what she's saying is, like, that is what she wants most. And and the author of the article says right off the bat that she doesn't believe there is such a thing as a word for the opposite of loneliness. I actually think there is. And I think that 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 word is the word belonging. Belonging. I mean, when you, when you say that like you belong somewhere, what that means is it's a place where you fit. It's a place where you feel like you're safe. A place where you can feel completely and totally at home. That's what belonging means. And I believe that actually is what the opposite of loneliness is really all about. And, and this is all over our world. Um, so let me just give you, a, believe it or not, a pop cultural reference. You know, a lot of you out there probably don't think I have this in me. You know, you're like, that Michael guy, he can talk more about the 1880s than the 1980s and certainly can't talk about anything that's, you know, newer than 20 years ago. But watch, watch. <laughs> Thanks, David. I need your help with this one. So uh, who here saw the most recent Star Wars film? Rise of Skywalker. Okay, raise your hand if you liked it. Raise your hand if you didn't like it. Be bold. Uh, okay, okay, so more likes than dislikes. Well, in the interest of neutrality, you know, I don't want to, like, turn you off from what I'm going to say in this, but I'm not going to tell you what I thought of it. Um, but it was great. <clears throat> As evidenced by the fact, I think I saw it in theaters, I think it was three times. 
What, what do you say? Three. Okay. Amanda says three. Um, well, so, so the, the entire sequel trilogy, the main character in the sequel trilogy is Ray, um, this girl who's a scavenger who's never known her family. And the entire series of, of these three new movies is all about her search across the galaxy to find the place where she belongs. And if you've seen the last movie, then what you know is that the last film actually gives a resolution to the question, where does she belong? And I'm not going to comment on whether it was good or bad, um, but, but that's what those films are about. You could summarize them by saying it's about belonging. And so that's our culture. But the question I want to ask is, what about the way of Jesus? What about the way of Jesus? And what our passage tonight is going to show is that through the gospel, we can belong. We can belong to God, and we can belong to each other. And so the gospel is what makes that happen. The gospel is what allows us to feel as though, and not just to feel as though, but to truly belong. And it's going to, our passage is going to do that in, in four different ways. So <clears throat> uh, turn to the book of First Peter. And again, I'd encourage you, don't use a phone for this if you can at all avoid it. Not that we want to like shame any phone users out there because sometimes, you know, the Bible app is hard to beat. But as much as possible, it's so good to get in the habit of actually opening up a Bible so you can like mark it up and, and, and follow along with it instead of just kind of numbing out to a screen. So if you have a Bible, turn to, for, turn to the book of First Peter. And before I even read this passage, let me tell you what I believe we're going to find in it. Through the gospel, what this passage is going to say is that Christians belong because we are, number one, children in the same family. Number two, we're stones in the same building. Number three, we're priests in the same temple. And number four, we're citizens in the same nation. I want to give a shout out to a guy named Warren Wearsby, who is the source of that outline. <clears throat> so let's read this passage here. This is chapter 1, um, starting in verse 22, actually. We're going to go back a few verses. Um, is there actually someone who would want to help read for us tonight? We haven't done this in a while. Anyone who's willing? David, do you want to jump in? So um, would you be willing to go from chapter 1, verse 22, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10? Wow, that's a lot of verses, Michael. Okay, let's see if I can do this. You got this. Yeah, let me just stand behind this. Since you have, uh, give me a second. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified the souls in sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not the seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring world of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all glory is like the flower of grass. All grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which has been preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, I envy and I, excuse me, envy and all slander, like newborn babies, along for the pure milk of the word, so that it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, and coming to Him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You have also, as living stones, are beings built up as spiritual house for the holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices up acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a pressure cornerstone, and he believes in him will not be disappointed. This pressure, this value then is for you who believe. 
But all those disobedient, the stone which uh, the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and this will doom. To this doom they were appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. For you have have had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thank you. That's awesome. <clears throat> it was. And uh, would there maybe be one or even two volunteers? I- I'd love to just invite one or two volunteers who want to stand up, actually, and would you just pray for us as we look at this passage of Scripture? Oh, go for it. No, just like, like just right now, just as we dive in, just... Uh, Thank you. Yeah, you know, gosh, the Bible is, is God's power in verbal form. Um, and so, like, what we're doing tonight is not just talking about any old subject. This is, this is actually, as, as the Bible is open, as the word is preached, that's God's power at work in people's hearts uh, in, in verbal form. So, here we go. I want to just give a little quick intro here based on the context of what we just read. So, I told you that there are four different metaphors in this passage And they each capture a different way that we belong to the people of God. And if you know the context of this letter, you can see why that would have been important to the people who would have been the first to read it. Because the people who got this letter are a people who are living in exile. Now, not literally in exile from their homes, but but a spiritual exile from the world around them. And the reason for that is that they're followers of Jesus... And because they're followers of Jesus, they therefore look different than the other people around them. And that's still true today. Like, if you follow Jesus, your life can and should look different from the other people around you. Not to say that, like, we're supposed to be so weird and crazy that we're seen as being out of this world. But we're said to, but, but Jesus called us, calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. <laughs> so not out of this world, but in, but not of. And so as a result, the people who this letter was written to, you know, they're living like Jesus, and they're looking different from the people around them. And so the people around them begin to exclude them, begin to ostracize them. And in some cases, they may have even been downright persecuting them. And we don't know necessarily all that entails. You know, it's possible that maybe they could have lost their jobs because of their witness as Christians. Uh, But this is why throughout the letter, Peter calls them strangers and aliens. He's saying, look, if you feel like you don't fit here on this earth, the reason is that you don't. Our citizenship is not on this earth, it's in heaven. And man, what, a, what an amazing thing to realize that. Because if you're living for the things in this world, and if that's what you've got your sights set on, those things 
are going to ultimately disappoint you. You know, you might spend years and years and years of your life running after those things only to get them and to realize, man, is this truly all there is? Is this truly all there is? You know, John Rockefeller, one of the most uh, wealthy men who's ever lived, was once asked how much money he'd need in order to feel satisfied. And his answer was, just one dollar more. Always just one dollar more. And so Peter's saying, like, you guys don't belong here. You guys are strangers and aliens. And, and, and some of you might even know a little bit more deeply what he's talking about. Because, you know, I know that there are people here tonight who did not grow up in any kind of Christian environment, not a Christian family, uh, maybe not around a lot of Christian friends. And when you became a Christian, it turned your whole social world upside down. You know, or there are some of you who um, have lived overseas or even are living overseas right now. Um, you know, I have friends who grew up overseas because their parents were missionaries and were called to take the message of Jesus to places around the world. And if, if that's something that you've experienced before, then you know what it's like to not feel like you belong. And so that's the situation of the people that Peter's writing to in this letter. And so in chapter two, what he tells them is, even if you don't belong in your culture, you do belong to God and you do belong to God's people. Uh, you know, one of the most profound things I think I've ever heard anyone say uh, came from the mouth of a 16-year-old. Now, for those of you who work with teenagers, you know, like in youth groups and that kind of thing, you're probably thinking, oh my gosh, you know, surely not. <laughs> but no, I remember once I was speaking somewhere and was talking about this theme of belonging. And, and I, was, I was trying to invite people to share, like, what has God been speaking to you through these messages? And a 16-year-old boy in the audience raised his hand and he said, you know, like this has been a really hard year for me and I've had all these different things happen, but you know what I've come to, you know, what God has been teaching me is that home is him. Home is him. And so Peter is all about that in this chapter and he does, he, he, he sort of explains how we as believers can belong to God and to each other using four metaphors. And the first one uh, is found in verse 22. So look at verse 22. It says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Now here, Peter is saying that if you are a Christian, then that means that other Christians are your fellow brothers and sisters. And so what he's saying, therefore, is that believers are children in the same family. And if you were to take a survey tonight, of, of everyone in this room, and you were to ask, you know, what, what your family experience was like growing up, my guess is that it would probably be all over the place, you know? Um, and in fact, just, just for fun, um, actually, I want you to do that now. Like, just turn to one or two people next to you, and I want you to share with someone next to you um, one thing that you really appreciated about your family growing up, but then also one thing that you wish you could change. So, you know, take 30 seconds, just turn to someone Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull you back together here. Now, uh, just for fun, anyone want to share what they shared? 
one thing you appreciated about your upbringing and maybe one thing you might change. Crickets, yeah. I'm sure you guys are all probably worrying that your mom is like going to be listening in on the live feed or something. It's like, how could you possibly say that about me? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, well, that's fine. We don't need to throw anyone under the bus here. Um, but, you know, look, I, I would imagine that if you were to take all that was said just now and you were to kind of make an average of what all of our some experiences were like, you know, here's what I think we'd come out with. I think we'd come out with something probably a little bit like, uh, you know, the Home Alone family. Remember this? Anyone watch Home Alone over Christmas? You know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag, right? You've got Kevin, the young, young kid. Uh, who was that? Macaulay Culkin. And uh, he's got the mean older brother or whatever it is. And he, the family has, like, way too many kids. And, oh, you know, his parents forget to take him on their family vacation. And so, you know, that's why, like, most of the movies about, like, how much fun he has by himself, you know, trashing his parents' house, defending his parents' house against bad guys. But here's the thing. At the, you know, the, 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 when all is said and done... He's still a kid on the inside, and he still wants his family back, which is why there's, you know, the very tearful reunion at the end. And the same way, like, your family experience may have been absolutely horrible, but there's a little kid inside every one of us that longs for family. And family as it should be. And that is what the body of Christ is meant for. It's not often how it is, unfortunately. I I acknowledge that. But that is what God intended the body of Christ to be. He intended it to be a family. And now each one of these, you know, each one of these metaphors we're looking at tonight, it kind of captures a different angle of what it means to belong to God's people. This first one about family speaks of intimacy. You know, so a group feels like family when you're when you're fully loved, but at the same time fully known. There's, There's an intimacy to family that you can't replicate um, hardly anywhere else. There's an intimacy to to being a family. And and this is why in verse 23, it actually gives you the reason that believers can be called a family. So look at verse 23. And it says there that the reason that uh, we can be children in the same family is through the new birth. So verse 23 says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Now, I hate to break it to you, um, but in case you didn't know this, you can't actually pick your parents. You know, I know some of you out there may have been like, oh man, I wish I could have done that. But no, you can't, you can't pick your parents. The reason you're in the earthly family that you're in is because you were born into it. There's not much you can do about it. In the same way, the only way that you can be a part of God's family is by being born into it. Not through physical birth, but a spiritual birth. And, and, and you know, man, it's kind of, if you, I don't know if you ever stepped back and thought about, like, why does the Bible use that image of birth? Um, you know, birth is a violent thing. It's a hard thing. It's an intense thing. Um, I happen to know some people who have just gone through the process of giving birth. If you want to find out if I'm telling the truth, you can just go talk to them. It's the same thing with spiritual birth. If you meet Jesus, it's going to turn your whole life upside down in the best possible way. And it's not just a matter of, you know, oh, I, I, now that I'm a Christian, I show up to a church meeting every Sunday or I show up to a Thrive meeting, uh, you know, every Thursday. Jesus transforms every area of your life. Jesus transforms every area of your life. And it's a transformation that's so dramatic that not only should other people notice it, but it's so dramatic that the Bible actually calls it being born again. It's becoming a totally new person. And intimacy is the result of that experience. 
know, your siblings may be people who are very different from you. Like, I don't know if, <laughs> some of you probably do know my siblings. It used to be I came to Thrive and I knew people who were in my class in high school. And then I came to Thrive and people were my sister's class in high school. And now I come to Thrive and people were in my brother's class from high school. So some of you guys might actually know some of my family. Uh, but, you know, anyone who does know my family knows we are, like, completely different. We just, you know, we outsourced all the athletics in my family to my brother. Um, <laughs> So he's one of the four captains of the football team his senior year, you know, and he works out all the time and used to go around in big muscle shirts. And here's me, always reading books and doing way too much school, and I have the arms of a thinking man. And I don't know. I'm sure it's good for something. Oh, Allison says I'm a strong, independent man. Ah, oh, yes. I needed that. I needed that. I needed that. <laughs> that. So, so you might be like me. You know, you might have siblings who are just totally different from you. But why is it then that you can still, like, have this bond with siblings, no matter what you think of them, that you can't have with any other people? And the reason for that is that you've been raised by the same parents. You know, only you, you know, you and your siblings know what it's like to be raised by that mom and by that dad. And this is why, you know, when you get into your teens and 20s, you, you, you go through life thinking at first that you're the product of your own choices, and then by the time you get into your 20s and into your 30s and 40s and older and older, you realize, actually, no, I'm really the product of my family. <laughs> and that's why it's around that time when you finally get to, like, get into those conversations with your siblings. You're just like, oh, my gosh, look at how mom and dad, like, look what all the, the ways that they messed us up. Oh, my gosh. There, there's kind of like you can only understand that if, you're, if you've been raised by the same parents. Now, now, take that kind of sibling closeness, okay, and multiply that a million fold. That is the kind of closeness that siblings in the body of Christ are designed to have. And the reason for that is that we have been born of the same father. We have experienced the father's love. We know what he's like. You can go on a mission trip halfway around the world. You can meet a believer who doesn't speak your language, who doesn't understand your culture, who knows nothing about what it means to live in the United States of America, and, and you can be best friends with this person in five minutes because you have the same dad. You have the same dad. There's an intimacy that the non-Christian world can never imitate. You know, this actually happened to me. I, don't ask me why, but I was once, I, one time I found myself in the country of Macedonia. Anyone ever visited Macedonia? Probably not. Anyway, there I was in Macedonia. I go to this prayer room, and there are all these charismatic Christians who are praying in all these crazy ways, and, and there's this Macedonian man there. I don't speak Macedonian. He didn't speak English. It turned out he spoke German. Well, I speak a little bit of German. And so I'm in this noisy room with all this worship music going on, talking to a Macedonian man in German, and we're praying together. <laughs> I mean, I'm not praying very well because my German is terrible. But, but <laughs> it was just the craziest thing because we both had the same father. We both knew Jesus. We both knew Jesus. And so that's why in verse 22, Peter says, love one another deeply from the heart. I mean, wouldn't it be so cool if Thrive and just any Christian community were a community that was known for how much its people loved each other? You know, I once heard a story about a pastor who was trying to, like, plant a church or replant a church or something like that. And he got the advice of an older, more experienced pastor. You know, how on earth do I do this? And the older, more experienced pastor said, well, just, 
Just get your people loving one another. And if you get your people loving one another, there are going to be so many people who are going to be drawn to that kind of community. And in verse 22 where it says, love one another deeply from the heart, that word deeply, it means fervently. It means striving with all one's energy. And if you want to actually be a part of that community, you have to like, that takes effort. That takes investment. You know, it's all pretty easy to feel like, oh man, I just love all these people, but then you actually get to know them. You get to realize, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> I'm messed up, she's messed up, he's messed up, you know, like all of the junk starts coming out and you think, well, this is not the Christian community that I dreamed of. Well, let me tell you, that's where Christian community starts. When you finally get to know people, and not just like shallow surface level, but like truly know <laughs> someone and allow them to know you, and then you actually continue to love each other, that is the kind of community that I want to be a part of. And by the way, the reason that verses 24 and 25, I think, are put right next to this verse 22 about loving one another, verses 24 and 25 say that we've been born again by the truth, by the truth of the word of God, meaning that it's impossible to love the truth and to hate one's Christians, uh, Christian brothers and sisters. You can't do those two things at the same time. That's not how family works. And I think one of the reasons that tears Christian community apart is a spirit of gossip. Where, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, there's a story where King David is on the run for his life from King Saul. And he goes into a, a cave where, where uh, Saul goes into a cave where David is hiding. Saul doesn't know that he's in there. So David takes his, his sword and he cuts off a little corner of Saul's robe while Saul isn't aware. And then Saul and David both exit the cave and David kind of holds up the thing and says, oh, look at this, I cut off a little piece of your cloak. And, and Saul you know, realizes, oh my gosh, like David has spared my life. But, but for David, what he has done in snipping off a little bit of that robe, it's humiliated the king, who even though he's a terrible king, he's the Lord's anointed. And oh my goodness, how often I have been guilty, how often I'm sure many of us have been guilty, of just kind of snipping off the corner of the robe of a brother or sister and kind of just you know, saying something behind their back, you know, saying something that isn't necessarily wholesome or nice or Christ-like. David was conscious, conscien, uh, conscious, con what I try? conscience, conscience stricken when he realized what he had done. And so be on guard against that kind of thing in a Christian community. So first of all, first metaphor in this passage says that through the gospel, we can belong to God and to each other as children in the same family. Children in the same family. Now, second, through the gospel, we can belong to God and to each other also as stones in the same building. Now, I'm not saying, you know, after tonight, you should all go out and get stoned. That's not the point of the message. But the idea here is unity. If the first idea was intimacy, the second one is unity. So look here at verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So these verses tell us that God is in the building business. I got any people here tonight who are like in the construction industry or build things? We've got Davey. Anyone else involved in building things? Maybe, maybe. Okay, O'Connor over there. Adam, yeah, Adam builds like, what do you, what do you, 
I don't know, telephone poles? Can you build those? Power lines. There we go. There we go. You know, one time I was on a walk with Adam, and we went by this, like, power transformer station thing, and Adam was pointing out all the stuff of what it was. It was really cool. Adam's really cool. You should get to know Adam. Uh, anyway, God is in the building business. God's in the building business, and he is taking people, and he is quarrying them out of the rock of sin and rebellion. And God is dressing them as beautiful living stones to be used in the construction of a temple. Not talking about like a physical temple where God's presence would dwell in the Old Testament. I'm talking about a spiritual temple where God dwells in the hearts of every true believer. And that's a beautiful picture of salvation, by the way. I mean, if you think about it, it sometimes takes a little bit more uh, chiseling and hammering and pounding for God to carve certain stones, certain stubborn stones out of the quarry. You know, maybe you were one of those stones and God had to work on you for a long time before you know, finally you realized who Jesus was. But one thing that those stones all have in common is that a stone ain't going to move itself. You know, if you were in the quarry, you put a big old ladder in front of a stone and said, hey, stone, you know, climb up this ladder out of the quarry. That stone ain't going to go anywhere. You know, sometimes that's what we try to do. We try to, you know, like, you have someone in your life, you're like, oh, man, like, if this person would just clean up their life and just obey all these commandments, just kind of climb these rungs on the ladder, you know, then they could be used in God's kingdom, in God's temple. <laughs> but but the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that all of our hearts were stone. All of us were completely and totally dead and insensitive to the things of God. It wasn't until Jesus passed by um, our lives and actually gave us a new heart, like it says in the Bible, that Jesus can take out of you your heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that responds and that is sensitive to him and to his truth. And so we are those stones that were taken out of the quarry, out of the world, out of sin, out of rebellion. And what Peter is saying is that God wants to take those stones and build them into something. And he's building a spiritual house, is what he says. And that's his church. His purpose is for the church to be the place where God dwells on earth. Like God wants for people to look at us as his people and to not just see this wobbly, rickety old building with a bunch of stones that refuse to fit together, but he wants the world to look at, at, the, at the church and see a beautiful building that's so perfectly fit together that it shows forth Jesus to the world. And that's the kind of unity in verse 4. And the, and the kind of unity in verse 4 is all based around this key little phrase. It says here that, the house is being built as you come to him, the living stone. That's referring to Jesus here because Jesus is the only one so far in human history to rise from the dead and live forever. He is the living stone. And man, people have said that if you were to try to summarize all of human history, human history can be summarized as a search to find unity and diversity. Now, this is why America's motto is e pluribus unum. Anyone know what that means? Out of many, one. That's right. Parker coming in clutch. Uh, you should get to know Parker, too. Out of many, one is what that means. And so, in other words, America was founded on the idea that we can be this nation of immigrants. You know, we can come from all over the world. And yet, we want to unite as one nation under the ideals of freedom. But look, you know, we're 250 years almost into that. And we're finding out that maybe it's not actually going to work. I mean, the reality is that, like, if you look at our politics right now, or you look at, like, all kinds of things in our society right now, I mean, what we're finding out is what we found out all through human history, which is that no human attempt to hold together civilization 
is ever going to last. Our sinful nature keeps getting in the way. And it makes us put ourselves over others. You know, that results in division. That's where division comes from. Sometimes this can even come into the church. And just to kind of put some flesh on those bones, I want to read you something. Uh, some of you may have heard of the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer before. Um, or if I were saying it right, Dietrich, oh, I don't know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <laughs> trying to redeem that little comment about my German earlier. Uh, so, so he was a guy who actually gave his life standing up against the Nazis uh, because of his Christian faith. And uh, one thing that you may not know about him is he also ran an underground seminary during the war years. He would train pastors, um, and that was illegal to do. So he ran this underground seminary, and kind of out of that experience, he had a lot of very amazing insights on what true Christian community is meant to look like. Let me read you a quote of his from a book called Life Together. And this is just a quote about how sometimes when you allow Christian community to be built around anything but Jesus, it ultimately will fall apart. So here's what he says. He says, innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. God hates visionary dreaming and makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. It's a pretty deep quote, but basically if I were to summarize that, he's saying like, look, when you try to get a whole bunch of people to come together under any other flag but Jesus, it's going to fall apart. You know, and even if like you're a pastor of a church and you're trying to say like, hey, everyone follow after what my idea is, you know, sometimes that's just good leadership. Other times that's trying to like rally people together under something other than just Jesus. And so if you come together under the flag of Jesus, that's where true unity comes from. You know, back in the Old Testament, uh, the, 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 the image that Peter's borrowing from is from the Old Testament of when they built the original temple. And when they built the original temple, uh, they carved the stones in the quarry, which was like miles and miles away from where they put the actual temple together. And all the stones were brought to Jerusalem to be used in the, in the construction. And it says in the Old Testament that when they brought the stones together, they slid together without a sound because they had been perfectly chiseled away in the quarry. Only Jesus knows how to quarry out the different parts of his body so that they perfectly fit together. And I'm pretty thankful that I'm not actually smart enough to know how all the different pieces fit together. But you know what happens is when you are pursuing Jesus and when I am pursuing Jesus and when everyone says, like, I want Jesus then what happens is you actually find that, man, I fit together better with the Christians who are on the right side and the left side of me. Now, some of us um, might try to build a church or build Thrive or something based on our own blueprint. Uh, but if that happens, our blueprint will just lead to a house of cards. We want to build something on the basis of Jesus and his blueprint. And that's where unity can come from. So we've talked so far about uh, the first one and the second one. So, you know, we're, we're 
Uh, through the gospel, we belong to God and to each other as a children in the same family, stones in the same building. Uh, two more really quick. We also belong to each other as priests in the same temple. So look at verse 5 again. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the idea for the first one, remember what it was? Intimacy was the first one. Um, Second one was, remember the second one? Unity. So intimacy, unity. This third one is ministry. We're, we're, in, in the Old Testament, the, the priests were this special class of people. And they, they, you know, they were the guys who would be the go-betweens between God and everyone else, which meant that you couldn't worship God directly. If you wanted to worship God, if you wanted to sacrifice to God, you had to go through a priest. But I'm glad that today we don't have to do that. We don't have to come to a priest in order to pray to God. We don't have to come to anyone else in order to offer sacrifices to God. Like We can come to God directly through Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for that. And one of the things that that means is that, that we all have the ability to serve God in our own way. And this, in the, in the time of the Reformation, this was called um, the, the idea of the priesthood of all believers. And it was based on this verse. I mean, this verse is probably one of the most profound verses in the whole New Testament. Because what it's saying is, every believer has something to offer to God. You know, it's not the case that it's just the guy with the microphone or it's just the you know, the person who's like the the worship leader. Like, no, every single person in this room is made uniquely with unique gifts, with unique talents, with unique abilities, with unique perspectives on who God is. And, you know, just to name some of those gifts, like the Bible talks about the gift of an evangelist, someone who's really, really good at sharing their faith with people who don't know or follow Jesus. Or, you know, there's also the gift of shepherding, like caring for the needs of other people, like helping walk people through the challenges in their lives. Um, There's the gift of teaching, taking the scriptures and opening those up. It's been said that evangelists are concerned with the soul. Shepherds are concerned with the sheep. And teachers are concerned with the scriptures. And those are just three of like tons of different gifts that are mentioned in the Bible that God has distributed to the body of Christ. And my hope and my prayer is that like out of this group, God would raise up evangelists and God would raise up teachers and he would raise up missionaries and he would raise up prophets and, and all the you know, gifts of healing and all the different things that are spoken of in scripture. The thing that can hinder that is when we become like indifferent or apathetic to the fact that, oh my gosh, like God wants to use my life. You know, sometimes we come to a gathering and think that it's just a spectator sport. You know, like, yeah, I'm at Thrive. I'm going to sit in this chair, and I'm going to grow, and it's going to be great. And then you, like, say to your friend, like, sometime during the middle of the week, like, hey, I went to this thing, and I sat in this chair, and it was great, and you should come, and you should sit in the chair next to me, and then it'll be great times two. (laughs) It's not a spectator sport. You can't just show up and sit in a chair and expect that God's going to do all kinds of amazing things in your life. You know, there's a reason that, like, a lot of times if you've been hanging around in, like, a church, people say this really corny phrase, get out of the boat. You know, this is about the story where Peter, you know, he's in the storm, and Jesus is walking on the water, and he says, Jesus, if that's really you, then call me to, to step out of the boat and to come to you on the waves. Pretty daring thing to do. 
like if we're not willing to step out of the boat and to take a step of faith and to maybe try to use a gift that I'm not sure that I have or to try to serve the body of Christ in a way that might be scary, I mean, then we're, we're not going to grow. You know, this is actually, by the way, if, if, I don't know if there are any science people among, you, among us here, but, you know, you, th- this is actually something that's proven by, like, the way that the brain works, scientists will tell you, that, like, you can actually rewire your brain. You know, if, you, if, you, if your brain, like, every time you see something, like, oh, my gosh, like, um, the idea of doing this really scares me. You know, your brain is sending signals that tell you that. You can rewire your brain, but you can't just do that through, like, sitting and, and trying to, like, cram a bunch of knowledge in your head. It's changed through experience. And what happens is it's, it's like a muscle. The more you use the muscle, the stronger it gets. And as, and as we step out in faith and use the gifts that God has given us to build up the body of Christ, each time we grow a little bit more. Each time we grow a little bit more. And man, this connects to belonging. Because you, if you, one of the secrets to like being um, involved in a, in a group of believers is if you feel like, man, I really don't know people very well yet. I really want to come to know and be known in this group. The secret, the, like the, the shortcut to that is find a place you can serve. You know, there, if you're like serving alongside people, you know, preparing a meal for a gathering or like cleaning up after Thrive, you know, it's actually a great way to get to know people. And there's a sense of belonging that comes from all being on the same team, from running in the same direction, being about the same purpose. You know, just one example of this, um, one of actually the closest knit Christian communities I think I've ever been a part of was just five people. Five people. I lived in China uh, for a couple of months when I was in college on a study abroad, and I realized that there were a bunch of other Americans who were about my age, who were taking a bunch of the same, you know, in the same classes I was in. And I remember we were like, you know, first couple of days, we were looking across the classroom at each other, and I kind of had this realization, you know, just based on the way that they're acting, the way they're behaving, I am almost positive these guys are Christians. And they were looking at me, I think they were doing the same thing. And it turned out they were there as missionaries. They were there to reach out to Chinese students for a whole year. And, and they eventually invited me to join in what they were doing. And so, like, every Saturday morning for, like, five hours, we'd go to their apartment and we would pray with ferocity that God would open up doors among the Chinese. And it was so fun. It was so cool. And I just, like, they became such dear friends. And it felt like, man, every victory they had was a victory I had because we had the same purpose. We were running the same direction. It felt like a band of brothers fighting for the same cause. That's what it means to say that we belong to each other and to God because we're priests in the same temple. And then one final thing really quick is that uh, we are citizens in the same nation. We're citizens in the same nation. So this is verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Uh, and I think there's more to those verses, but I lost the last page of my notes, so I don't know what it says. <laughs> You'll just have to look in your Bibles yourself. But the idea here is that in the Old Testament, God had called the nation of Israel to be his holy nation. He wanted them to be blessed in order to be a blessing. So you might remember the story where Solomon is king over all of Israel, and this gal named the Queen of Sheba comes from hundreds of miles away to come and behold Solomon's wisdom, his wealth, his knowledge. And and through God blessing Israel in that time, all of the blessing that came to Israel was meant to go out to all the rest of the nations, including to the Queen of Sheba. 
Now, what happened, of course, is that unfortunately, like Israel, had a selfishness problem. They kind of made it all about themselves, and they didn't take what they'd been given and share it with other people. But what's crazy about this, the reason this would have blown the mind of every Jewish reader who would have read this, is that now what this is saying is that the church, and this is like not just Jews, this is like Jews and Gentiles, for the very first time, they get to be that holy nation. Like we get to have that same ministry of being a witness to people around us. So if the idea of the first one was intimacy, second one, unity, third one, what was the third one? A ministry. The fourth one is testimony. Every single one of us should have a testimony that people see in our lives. And, and, and if that happens in a community, oh my goodness, like just amazing things can result. Um, you know, just as we close here, I'm going to give you an example of what happens when God's people actually work together in the way that he designed for it to do. Um, I recently came across an article. Um, and this was an article about a bunch of churches in a town. I don't even remember the name of the town. But it was like, you know, a Presbyterian pastor and a Baptist pastor and a Methodist pastor or whatever. They all get together and they just, first of all, kind of begin by just becoming friends. You know, they rub shoulders, they meet together, they spend time together. And over time, they begin to realize, you know what, I kind of like this guy. And I like this guy and I like this guy. You know, we may not necessarily agree on every single jot and tittle of what's in the Bible. But, like, we, we agreed on Jesus. And we know that he's the way, the truth, and the life. We know that he is the one that we're called to proclaim. And so these guys from these three different churches, they begin to work together. They begin to act as though they're actually citizens in the same nation. And they have gone on as like these three different churches to plant other churches in their community. And that's a witness to the world. You know, the world is waiting to see a demonstration of how different people can actually work together. I mean, oh my goodness, anyone who reads the news knows how much the world is longing to see an example of that. Did you know that that is what the church can be? That is what the church can be. If we're willing to actually step out to pursue Jesus, to be children in the same family, stones in the same building, priests in the same temple, citizens in the same nation, the way that God is gonna, could, could blow on that and cause his light and his truth to go out into the world would just be, would be incredible is what it would be. So that's the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, Belonging. Through the gospel, we can belong to God and to each other. And so uh, as we're going to move into small groups now, um, let me pray for us. I'll invite someone to come up and uh, lead us in that transition. Lord, thank you that your word says that you make a home for the lonely. Psalm 68, 6 tells us that. And um, Lord, I just want to pray right now that if there's anyone here tonight that just needs to know in a deeper way that they belong, that they belong to you, and that they belong to your people. Um, Father, would you use tonight um, to help do that? Um, Father, help us to not be content um, to seek belonging in this world. God, help us to look at um, these truths that we've seen tonight and to seek belonging with you. Would you be our home? Um, would you help us to realize that you're our family? Lord, would we um, even model that? Would you help us as Thrive be a community um, that loves like Jesus loved? Would we be so closely bound together that we would slide together without a sound? Um, Lord, thank you um, that this is your dream for the church. Um, would we be faithful in living that out so that the world might know um, a little bit more clearly who Jesus is? 
We pray that in his name. Amen.